out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. Just let's get to it. This week it's going to be the turn of Anne Magnusson, who I spoke to very recently, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. One time member of the 80s band Bongwater, also starred in a sitcom titled Anything But Love and has appeared in films such as The Anger, Making Mr. Right, Clear and Present Danger, Panic Room and much, much more, but has had an amazing career in music, art, film, theatre, just about everything. Anyway, this is the interview with Anne and um, yes, you'll get the gist. I won't spoil it because frankly she's going to tell us all all and much more. Um, So after lots of chat and getting to know each other, as you do, she's in LA. It was great. It was sunny. I was jealous actually. Um, Yes, we got down to that early formative years and just tell us more. I was born in born in Charleston, West Virginia in 1956. So I was very influenced by 50s and 60s television because my parents watched a lot of television. They also, my mother was very cultural mind, cultural minded, culturally minded. And um, she had studied journalism and was interested in theater and she signed me and my brother eventually up for a lot of lessons, mostly me, mm. ballet lessons, piano lessons. Uh, I eventually took guitar lessons, uh, horseback riding, which was my favorite. And um, we were in, I was in community theater productions as a kid and all the way up to becoming an adult. So, even though this valley I grew up in, the Kanawha Valley in, in Charleston, West Virginia, is, it was, um, there were about, I guess 86,000 people there at the time. There were less than 50 there now. There was quite a lot of industry, um, particularly the chemical plants. Union Carbide was there. Their quality wasn't great, but it made for really beautiful sunsets. Yes. <laughs> Um, but the air quality was actually okay where I was. It depended on where you were and which way the wind was blowing. Uh, that could have been an influence on my brain. Who knows? Mm. I think a lot of it, a, a lot of the influences came from television and from movies. My parents loved the movies and books we and very- uh, exposure to the news. There was a lot of uh, watching the news and Time Magazine. And so... What I meant to say was, in spite of the fact that I was in this rather isolated valley, it's not easy to get there, and it's really hard to get there now because they don't even have direct flights from New York or even Pittsburgh. You can't even fly. No, maybe you can. You can't get to Pittsburgh from Los Angeles directly. Uh, but the point is, it's it's somewhat isolated, and yet because of the technology of the time and the way my my parents were oriented, I was exposed to a lot of um, culture, high and low and in between. 
Yes. So when you were sort of hitting the late, when it was the late kind of the six, late 60s, you were sort of probably in your mid-teen period. And then, you know, obviously we'd had the sort of the Beatles had sort of hit in the early 60s and then the Stones and the Kinks and there was Hendrix and sort of 67 was the summer of love. Obviously you were still very young then, but did things like that creep into your parents and the household at all? Well, oh yeah, there was, um, well, before I get into that, I should also say that uh, where I grew up is firmly embedded in the Bible Belt. So I was exposed to a lot of old school preaching via the radio and also there would be local country music folks and local preachers who would buy the really cheap tv time first thing in the morning and I I was fascinated with all that my grandfather was a Presbyterian minister he started as a Swedish evangelist because my the Magnuson side of the family is Swedish so my grandmother was um, a believer, but in a very mm, low-key, fun way. Right. <laughs> she was really creative herself, and she taught me how to sew and crochet and knit. And, and I've actually picked up the sewing hobby since my childhood. I kind of dropped it as I got older but I picked it up again during the pandemic. So I'm making all this fabric based art and it's also shows up in this web series that I have on YouTube called WTF 2020, which uses these dolls that my grandmother made um, in the fifties and sixties in Morgantown, West Virginia. She made them out of pipe cleaners and old stockings and just leftover fabric because coming out of the depression, my my grandmothers and my parents never threw anything away right which yes. is why i'm a bit of a pack rat myself i mean i have i have incredible archive of things from the last 50 even 60 years because i never threw anything away but uh, these dolls are very strange looking i kind of call my grandma an accidental outsider artist because she made these dolls for her grandchildren. She didn't make them for any kind of art purposes except for art for art's sake and for, uh, for function. But I, I've resurrected these dolls and used them in this YouTube series and this, the dolls voice all the anxieties and fears and feelings surrounding this pandemic and also the craziness of America at this yes. period of time. So um, she was, uh, she was, she believed in Jesus Christ and I have no problems with Jesus. He was way cool as we know yes. from the King Missile song. And, uh, but um, it, the, the brand of, of, of religious, what is it? Religious Bible thumping now is pretty different than back then. Back then I saw it as very fascinating theater because there were snake handlers and they were drinking strychnine and every now and then there'd be, there'd always be stories in the paper about somebody died from a rattlesnake bite or from drinking poison. <laughs> and I was mm. an avid newspaper reader. So all of that stuff really uh, came into my consciousness. My parents were not into rock and roll at all. I remember my dad, when Paul Revere and the Raiders played on the Ed Sullivan show, mm 
and they were dressed up in that American revolutionary drag. And my father was like, this is terrible. They should never make, like, this is a, a travesty. <laughs> of course, that made me like, oh, wait a minute. What, who are these people? Yes. It drew my attention to, the, to them. Um, and that was one of the first records I got. Paul Revere and the Raiders because my babysitter turned me on to more uh, Motown and Paul Revere and the Raiders specifically and the Four Tops was the first show I ever saw when I was in sixth grade right. I wore my first I wore my first mini skirt there the yeah. Beatles were a little I I was not as in tune with that or the more hardcore stuff until I got, I mean, hardcore, the Beatles aren't that hardcore, but um, the Rolling Stones really were until I got to be an older teenager. And then I was really full on into being a hippie. Right. Now, I always called me and my, my friends a glam rock hillbilly hippies. Because <laughs> once glam rock got in the picture, we were full on in, into that. It was a whole mishmash. Because you had, you had Neil Young. That album was such a huge influence. I loved early Elton John because I played the piano, so I loved piano-based rock, and I loved that that stuff. Particularly when all that material that him and Bernie Taupin were doing, like Tumbleweed Connection and um, Mad Men Across the Water, there was a real country gospel influence there that I I recognized somehow in my dna and i i just loved that um and there was a section there was a section in the local newspaper in the back the back if you folded the paper in the back of the paper on a, on the saturday it was a special section called 13 to 30 and when i turned 13 i was avidly read that because this is for me and it was all this uh, news about the youth culture yeah and so and that's was, where I learned about Led Zeppelin and Janis Joplin and stuff that really wasn't in our household because my parents weren't into that there was another funny story um, that my dad there was a special on tv about the youth culture in San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury and my dad wanted my dad could be very stern and authoritarian, which really explains my rebellious streak. But it also explains my, my need for control on some level, because I definitely inherited. He was a very well-ordered person and very irresponsible. And I, I, I'm happy that I inherited enough of that from him so that I didn't end up in the gutter like a lot of people <laughs> from the... From yeah. the East Village days, but um, he insisted that my, he was very stern when he wanted you to do something and there was no question that you would ever say no. So he wanted us to watch this, pay attention to this TV show. So we watched it and it was all about the hippie scene. And I think it was after the summer of love had happened and things were starting to degenerate on Haight-Ashbury after 66, 67, you know, it started to get very druggy and mm. all the homeless kids, all the kids were runaways were going there and it started to degenerate. I can't remember. I haven't looked it up recently. I did look it up when, 
when YouTube became a thing and I thought, oh, I wonder if that's online. And sure enough, it was. And I watched it again and it reminded me, I was like, oh, of course, this had the complete opposite effect my father intended. We couldn't wait to grow up and be hippies. Yes. Well, it must have looked very exciting, actually. I mean, you must Completely. And you know what we found? My husband finds really fun, wacky things that come up on YouTube. And recently there was some something that was recently released. It was a a Dutch rock festival called Pink Pop. Oh yes. Yeah, so there was all this footage from 72 to 74, I think, of all, mostly of all the kids. And I was losing my mind. I was telling my husband, who's he's a little younger than I am, and he didn't go through any of this stuff. And I said, Oh my God, these are my <laughs> this is what it was, this is how my friends and I dressed. And this is how young we were. It's like we were just children and um getting into, you know, mescaline and pot and all sorts of things that ended up getting us into trouble, of course. But um I love watching these kids in, at Pink Pop and and the bands, they weren't really, they weren't some of my top favorites, but the sound and the use of uh, a lot of flutes. Oh God, <laughs> yeah, that was probably Jethro Tull, wasn't it then? If they, if well, it had... wasn't, no, it wasn't big. They weren't, Jethro Tull wasn't there. There were a lot of fr- bands, French bands, bands I never heard of. There was a band the called... Sound, yeah, there was a band called Focus, weren't they? They were from Holland. Yeah, they, they? were on there. Yes, they're great. Do, 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 do. Focus, that was, fo- that focus, was completely focus. nutty. Yeah. Yeah, Focus, cool. Focus. They, they, they played there. They showed them. Definitely. I recognized them. But it was just the vibe was such an immediate time trip for me. And that ballad of Billy Balls, that was an immediate time trip, having this... Io Tillett Wright is the host of it, and her, the the woman who is one of the main narrators of the story. So I don't want to blow the surprise for anybody because the surprises are really amazing. <laughs> but it's bizarre to be older and now parts of your youth well, all of your youth and many parts of your entire life are now historical. I know. So to get a different take on things or to see footage of other places that were engaged in some of the same activity, it's it's very exciting. And um, well, particularly during this pandemic, you know, being stuck and, inside and not feeling like you have a life you you really have an ample amount of time and opportunities to reflect back yes on your on your life and on on history and how it all fits together or how you think it might fit together i don't think there's maybe an answer i don't think there it's hard to know if there is a greater picture where all these puzzles, puzzle pieces suddenly make sense in their various configurations. But I figure that will either happen when you die or it doesn't. So 
Yes, the, the but it's the, pretty it's pretty interesting to play with the pieces, you know, and to look at them again and yeah. have a different pers- have a different perspective on them when as one is older, definitely and wiser and wiser. Well, you can you can sometimes see well, you definitely can see what the outcome of certain periods were. So during the seventies, I mean, we'd had things like the Coquettes, which were sort of coming out of San Francisco in the sort of early seventies, and then glam rock was kind of happening with people like David Bowie, and then the Stooges, and then um, the New York Dolls. So were you? I mean, you mentioned Elton John and Bernie, and and their kind of. I suppose it was Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was a little bit more rocking at times though they did well I came my I came into Elton John earlier when he was a more they were kind of into the country thing it's not country like country and western it's not like American C&W it's it's that it was more a hippie masculine tinged mushroomy country rock gospel I mean his chords are all very gospely, but then and yeah, I loved Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. But then when I got when I discovered David Bowie, I really loved uh, Hunky Dory, and then Hunky Dory I got I got Hunky Dory and Ziggy the same Christmas, and I liked Hunky Dory better. And then something happened and shifted, and then. Ziggy became, you know, the god. He became, yes, absolutely. But I also was into all the, all that main man stuff. Um, but you know, yes. at the same time, I, I was, I was really into this Glenn Gould record of him playing Bach. I was really fascinated with Glenn Gould. I was reading about Isadora Duncan. I was obsessed with the 1972 BBC series War and Peace with oh, yes. Anthony Hopkins. So I was really kind of obsessed with history and 19th century stuff at the same time as glam rock and wondering what was going on in New York and, and certainly London. And when the New York Dolls album came out, we were just full on. <laughs> <laughs> full on New York Dolls freaks and then once you got into when Marquee Moon came out and and with Petty Smith's horses then the 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 focus was I've got to get to New York right I went to college in Ohio in 70 wait let me see 75 74 Went to college that that autumn. Autumn, very beautiful in Ohio in autumn, Absolutely. and um, I majored in theater and cinema, and and also philosophy and some other other classes and English, Shakespeare, the usual stuff, and then I I did a theater trip to london in 1975 oh did you yeah you went we went to i went we went with one of the uh, theater professors he was a scenic designer and he had this 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 trip you could take and i'm so grateful to my parents 
let me do that. So it was two weeks in London and five days in Prague in 1975. Wow. Because he was obsessed with Joseph Svoboda, who was a a major scenic designer at the time, who did very um, minimal and at the time it was very avant-garde, mostly opera productions. So when we went to, so in London, we saw all these plays. I mean, so much theater every day, matinees, evenings, museums. Um, we went to RSC, the National Theater. We saw student productions from the London, from uh, London University and other, that stuff blew my mind. There was a, there was a student production of The Lower Depths by Gorky that I had never seen anything that realistic before. The, 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 these actors, student actors, they were so good. And the whole, the costumes and the set, it really felt like you were in the most poor, depraved, desperate circumstances of Russia in the 1920s or the teens or whenever that was written. Mm. And I'd never really experienced, well, there was was a, a professional theater company came into Charleston when I was still in high school with the production of the the um, the Petrified Forest, which was a famous movie with um, Leslie Howard and and Humphrey Bogart, it made Humphrey Bogart a star. But I'd never seen a play. I'd seen a lot of uh, community theater, and I'd been in community theater. I played Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker, and I got rave reviews. Excellent. <laughs> and it was kind of something that encouraged me to maybe pursue this I thought well gosh people are saying nice things maybe I maybe I'm good at this and but maybe maybe I'll get into this you know but I was also interested in in journalism and I was the editor of the newspaper high school newspaper and I studied that too but but I got some exposure to some professional I remember my friend Jane and I saw a a a professional mime troupe that was um, uh, some kind of an offshoot of, of Marcel Marceau's troupe, or I think it was a, a touring group from his mime troupe. And we were so stoned and we were laughing so hard because the stuff's very funny and whimsical. And mm. so I got a lot of exposure, but it was, but to be in an actual like, other city like London and see people who were at the top of their game doing this stuff and then going to Prague which was still a communist country and we went to Joseph Svoboda's studio and I would just wander around Prague it this was long 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 before it became a hip destination so I got a lot of interesting exposure I went to Greece in the summer of 1974 when the junta fell and they all thought there was going to be a it was there was that incident in cyprus and this whole crazy there were a couple of days of absolute pandemonium i was up in a town called yanina which is on the border of greece and albania and there was absolute pandemonium because they thought there was going to be a war and we were all going to have to be sent back to the u.s but fortunately we weren't and 
So this was all pretty heavy stuff and heady stuff for a little old girl from West Virginia, you know. Yeah. But I loved it. I loved it. And then I went back to do more schooling in Ohio and then I signed up for a and made films there and was in productions, acting productions, and then I went back to London for junior year abroad in 1976-77. So I spent August 76 to June 77 in London and watched that whole punk rock explosion happen. Sure, because that must have been quite interesting seeing the, the scene, because you were, you know, if you'd been in, I don't know, Norwich or Oxford or I don't know, any other city, you probably wouldn't have really felt it. But in London, you would have definitely been sort of picking up. On oh, that. I watched the whole thing because um, when I arrived, there were still posters up for Blondie. Who was on that tour? Maybe you can look it up. It was Blondie and Patty Smith, or was it the Ramones? Anyway, a whole bunch of those bands had been there, had just been there. And the, and the posters were still up. And I started to see young kids walking around in these little stiletto high heels. But I watched this evolution of these kids turning. It was this turning point where they slowly started to evolve, you know, the London version of punk rock after seeing these New York bands. And as the months went by, the hair got more colorful, the, the pants got more bondage straps on them. Yes, we love the zoom. There was more, there were more incidents, crazy incidents going on. And then more bands, start, then these other bands started to appear. And then when the Sex Pistols showed up, I, I was following most of this on the tabloids, you know? Yes. And you saw everything and I would be on the bus and look down, you know, from the double-decker bus on Piccadilly Circle, and there would be like a group of them. And I'd never seen any anything quite like that. And it was so radical at the time. People with dyed hair, just just to have dyed hair was a radical thing. Yeah. And you so. combine it with this pasty white complexion of these British kids. And the surliness and then the intensity of these clothes. They really look like cartoon characters walking around in technicolor where the rest of the world was black and white. I know. All very just um, in the world. Well, the Eagles and such bands were sort of very hairy and beardy. Yes. They were definitely not hairy and beardy. There was not, yeah. yes, long hair was suddenly sort of looking, you did look I got, strange. I got all the, I got the singles and the clash and the sex pistols. Of course, I, they all got lost in the mail, which to this day just breaks my heart. But I still have, you know what, I'm going to try something. I'm going to try something. I'm going to show you. I don't know if you're going to even show any of this stuff. No, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I mean, don't worry, I'm just using the audio, but it's always nice to see your home. That's nice. Is that just not? But look at this. Wow. I pulled this off. This the, off the Brits were so outraged by everything that happened that the, I, can you see that? It's backwards. Yes, but you, that is absolutely. 
I was at the now I was seeing a play at the National Theater. I was going into the tube station. That was in, you know, those things they hold. Yes, absolutely. That hold so I said, that's gonna be collectible. And I just grabbed it and and popped into the tube station. And that was um and I had it framed. <laughs> I did it. So but you'd watch, but I was never really the thing about a lot of these. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Now I can really see you and not see me. Um, <laughs> the thing that, that was interesting is I well I couldn't really a lot of the stuff that happened early on with that punk rock scene was so insular, was so insular that you didn't really know it happened until the next day in the media, where of course Malcolm McLaren made sure that that was all in the newspaper. I remember that that gig on the the boat. Yes, with with uh, yeah, when they got arrested. But, but I never, but you, you know, I thought it was very insular, and I was honestly kind of afraid of a lot of those people because they they looked there was a lot of toughies there, and they could really hurt you. There was a lot yeah. of fighting, a lot of spitting. He loved spitting. At yeah, that stage yeah. And that was disgusting. And then, oh, I remember walking up Kilburn High Road on a Saturday. I decided not to ever do that again on a Saturday. The amount of vomiting going on on Kilburn High Road was so shocking to me. Yes. Hey, you know, we 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 got drunk and sloppy in West Virginia, but more of a Hazel Atkins kind of, you know, which that incorporated itself into some of my work too. But yes. there was just there was there was so much. It was so economically depressed. It was a very depressing time. I was actually very depressed there as well because it was hard to make friends outside of the Americans. I had some good friends there, but but I just felt like you couldn't really break into the, have British friends. They weren't very, uh, this is before England discovered ecstasy and people loosened up, you know. Yeah, we're very uptight as a nation. God, we're so uptight. And um, terrible teeth, you know, you can, you can definitely, <laughs> you can definitely, <laughs> there's no, you but can. I was a, but, but so I did, I, my friend Alexa and I in 1977 went to see The Damned in Bristol. They were playing at a pub. It was one of those rare times when things were kind of advertised. So I felt like, also, I she came for the second semester of that year, and I so I had a partner in crime who would go to these things with me. None of those other students wanted to go to any of this stuff with me. They they found it distasteful or frightening, and yes. I found it a bit frightening. But I still wanted to be part of it. So when I found somebody who was willing to to uh, roam the underbelly with me to some degree, yes. That was. I remember going there and seeing um, they, the the drummer of the Damned lit his symbol on fire <laughs> inside a pub, and I thought, "Oh my God, this place is going to burn down." But I I have a very clear recollection of seeing a woman dressed up walking around who I swear to God had to be Susie Sue. Right. Because there weren't that many people dressed like that they were i remember seeing sue catwoman and jordan a lot of those people who now i know who their names are but i would see them at different tube stations yes and and but you, they just they were so 
you just didn't feel like you could go up to them and say, hi, <laughs> I'm an American and I think this stuff is cool. And they yes. They would sneer, wouldn't they? That, let's face it. So when you, so after your London experience, and um, I know it was very, I expect there was like the fourth three-day week or four-day week. There was a lot of strikes and and the. Uh, oh yeah, and you know what? Yes, and it was I, I felt I'd never really understood what a class system was until oh, that right. year. <laughs> oh my God, I've never yeah. felt more shut out of things as opposed in America, it just felt so, like unless you were born into a certain class, your options were completely nil, not just limited. And my my father didn't give, we didn't really have that much money. And I didn't, I had a very, very meager allowance. And a lot of these other people on this program were getting, six times the amount when i asked one of them like what kind of allowance do you get and i nearly fell over hearing like holy shit that's why you you guys are staying in a nicer place (laughs) i mean in a a way i feel like i got to have a more authentic experience but it wasn't pleasant a lot of the time i was you know eating mcvitie's biscuits for dinner getting a little too tubby on those things but um i'll tell you i read a book decades later that nailed the whole vibe oh yes which one's this kent uh nick kent 70s memoir oh yes yes i I thought i thought you're gonna say uh the the um there was a guy who did a book called Notes from a Small Island. Um, he was an American journalist who was living in England, and he sort of wrote this very funny travel guide around England. Um, oh, I want to write that down. Notes from a Small Island. I can tell you. And then he did one, and then he, it was so successful, he started making writing lots of books and probably overdid it. But Notes from a Small Island was one of those classics, because he really nails England. Because, you know, the food was terrible, the hospitality sucks, you know, everything. Yeah, the food was bad, except the Indian restaurants saved my life. And yeah. I'd become a vegetarian before I got there. So there were all these really bizarre little, just a few of them, vegetarian restaurants that had the most strange, clearly those like classic English eccentrics there. And there were so many people I thought, my God, this is like being in a Charles Dickens novel, or they they really felt like they were from another century. I yes. think they it might have been Seventh Day Adventists or something. <laughs> yes. And then some hippie, and then some hippie leftovers. And, and I, I went I went hitchhiking around too, and I went to um Ireland and various other baths. Did you do Stonehenge? Yes. Alexa and I went to Stonehenge. Excellent. Loved it. You could still walk around there. There were no barriers. I know it was very free and easy then. It was it was very nice. So, um, God, you did. The get late, a, little... oh, we, a group of us drove up to Inverness and up to Scotland and and then oh, yes. back down, back down around the Lake Country. And the sun had come out as we were in the Lake Country, and that blew my mind. It was the most beautiful landscape I've ever seen in my life. Same thing in Ireland. When the sun would come out after the rain, it was absolutely breathtaking. 
But mm. also, you know, 1977 was the Silver Jubilee year. God, so you experienced the, the excitement of the Queen? Yes. Oh, I have all, I got all this, this uh, memorabilia from that. You got a mug, didn't and, you? And, and um, <clears throat> I didn't get a lot, but I got things from my parents, and then I've inherited them since they've passed oh, away. Oh, but, God, so you were, you were going from punk to royalty in, in sort of... I was everything. I wasn't one thing. It was, <laughs> that's, I've never really been one thing. Yes. But and, you've, got, and you've got to admit the, the all the kind of the ritual and the, the pageantry of the the kind of monarchy is quite sort of over the top, isn't it? It's quite something. It goes back hundreds of years. Yes, and it's I've I've uh, watched every single BBC historical drama about every king and everything they've ever done. Those early BBC dramas like yes. War and Peace. But the years before, like I think, I found every single one. I watched every single one of them, and I'm just the acting because you had these actors from the RSC who are just phenomenal. It's so they're so smart and so well done, and they don't look like they look like real people. And then by the '90s, all the stuff coming out of BBC, like the BBC historical dramas, like these all look like movie stars or models they don't look like real people yeah um, that's true actually did you so did you sort of watch things but, like but, that? It, but one one thing is that i went down specifically i forget where it was to see that crazy gold carriage go by with the queen in it for the silver jubilee whatever that procession was right i i went there and it was really crowded so i was wasn't too close but close enough and when that thing went by with her doing the wave <laughs> that was one of the most surreal things I've ever seen in my life the combination of that and then the surrealness of seeing these punk rockers and the other thing that was weird is the generational like the English would be so uptight and proper and 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 polite and then there would be this eruption on the bus of like somebody didn't get up for somebody for the the seat right, and then suddenly yes. there would be this screaming just out of nowhere like oh sod off you stupid cow <laughs> that was like my jaw dropped these people seemed so proper and nice and then all of a sudden and it was always some younger people and older people there was there was so much <laughs> pent-up anger Yes. It's kind of like America now. There, there just... seemed to be, when when those things happened, it seemed like, oh, there's a lot going on underneath all of this that isn't being displayed. And I think punk rock was obviously obviously a way to display it. But by the time I got back to America, I flew into D.C. And that was a whole different ball game like when we landed and then I got into the my friend picked me up and we were driving around um in the Washington DC and you're in there's a beltway or you go around and you see all those incredible um all those monuments and the roads were so wide and the cars were so big and there were so many African Americans who live in in DC where they were 
one guy I remember driving by in his huge, like, I don't know if it was a Cadillac or a Le Mans, but this huge 70s car with disco blaring, (laughs) funky disco, you know, blaring. And everything was fast and people were upbeat and they were fun and it was, summer was starting. And and I'm like, oh my God, I'm, why did I ever leave here? This is the land of possibilities. I didn't have that sense of being trapped and you were never going to be able to get out of your whatever rut they put you in economically. I felt like I had been freed in a way, but I still had a great time in London and England being absorbing all that culture. Well, absolutely, absolutely. So then, sort of hitting New York at that time because no, one... I went. Well, I went back to Denison University in Ohio for one semester of my senior year. That was 70, 77, the fall and early winter of seventy seven. I directed a play. I did other things, and then I thought, you know what, I got to get out of here. London prepared me. I felt like I had a little more courage and moxie to go to New York. And Mm -hmm. I looked in the files and I found a work study program that I could do for my last semester of senior year. And back then, they don't even let people live off campus anymore. But back then, I begged them to let me go. And I went to New York in early 78 as an intern at an off-off Broadway theater but I was going to CBGB's and Max's every night and going to avant-garde theater, downtown stuff, dance, theater, bands, and going to see art at the Museum of Modern Art, just everything New York has to offer. And quickly found a boyfriend <laughs> who was into all that stuff too. And he showed me around and we met Early on, we met Klaus Sperber, who also known as Klaus Nomi. Oh, yes. At Max's. That was early on. And uh, then I m- met a lot of people at CBGB's and started hanging out with, you know, you start becoming, you know, part of, of little groups of friends that uh, end up becoming scenes. And then those scenes connect to other scenes. And, and yes. um, I ended up working on this vaudeville show that Klaus Nomi premiered his his operatic alien and uh, then worked as a manager and booker at Club 57 which just had a retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art and just slowly not slowly very very quickly started picking up just all these friends kind of all the it was exciting because Americans are kind of famously friendly, maybe too friendly sometimes, but what I couldn't get in London, I was getting massively in New York, just tons of friends and lots of opportunities and lots of flexibility in terms of that scene down there. Artists were having bands, even though they couldn't play, musicians started making art even if they hadn't made art there were so many clubs and cabaret spaces and performance places i would see members of the new york dolls and patty smith and people i had been reading about 
walking around my neighborhood and it felt like you could be one of them and do your own thing in your own way. And so how did, how did you find people like Klaus? You know, because he's, he's, you know, he's become such a cult figure now, hasn't we he? We saw him, because uh, I was talking to Peter about this a couple of years ago, because I was trying to piece together all the timeline for the Museum of Modern Art show on Club 57. And... Um, he, he kept a very, he was a very, very religious journal writer. So he kept very detailed journals and diaries and he would send me in, in on, <clears throat> entries. And one of them was we went to Max's and Peter still is a very witty guy. He said, he told me, he said, look at, check out Joseph Goebbels over there in the corner. And it was Klaus. <laughs> yeah. And Klaus had a very, you know, his his bone structure was incredible. And he had very black, dyed black hair in the three little points. Yes. Already. And he was wearing makeup and he had this really tight vinyl top and vinyl pants on. You couldn't really miss him. No. And we just went up to him and started talking to him. That was the difference between London and New York. Like with, in New I'm York, with, you just felt like you could start talking to anybody. And if they were going to be hostile, you just walked away. But most of the time, they welcomed an opportunity to, to meet somebody new because that's what it was all about. It was just an exciting time to be young and meeting new people and having sex a lot yes, <laughs> and seeing bands and never being in your apartment much except to dress up or sleep or you know watch some tv here and there and what we and and did you meet bands like the mumps as well because they were sort of yeah i met i met um lance loud and christian hoffman through the vaudeville show i met lydia Around that time, it's a little hard to, re Lydia Lunch, I mean, yeah. it's a little hard to pinpoint some of these times. You'd see people around a lot, and then suddenly you became friends with them on some level. Lydia, I didn't really get to know too well until 1982 when I did, when I went back to London to shoot The Hunger with David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve, and Christian said, Oh, Lydia lives it because I've become really good friends with Christian by then. He said, "Oh, Lydia lives there now. Here's her number. Call her up." So I did, and she was real friendly. I was a little scared of her, but she was really, really friendly. And we hung out, and we went to the Kensington Market. And Queen of Siam had just come out, or she she gave me an autographed version of that, and I didn't really get to see. Oh, and then we we then I'd gone to Italy in around June 1982 and Lydia was there doing the same festival. It was a communist women's festival in Bologna. Blimey. And uh, we ended up there performing and she and I ended up doing this duet. It was just a screaming duet. It was one of the most fun things I've ever done. And I, you know, I've hardly talked. I don't think I've even told anybody about that. Certainly not in an interview. 
things like that happened all the time and and then they they weren't documented and they're just disappeared into the ether until moments like this where you remember oh yeah we did that we did that, that crazy moment do that so because because new york at that time i mean seen documentaries it seemed like it was kind of slightly being left to decay but at the same time, artistically, you know, there was the birth of punk. There was also, well, vaguely, um, disco. There was rap music. But there was a huge drug scene as well. That one. Oh yeah, it was very, very, very shady and sleazy, and it was scary. It's. Mm. I was trying to emphasize that recently because I think I've romanticized it a little too much because it was a very very frightening place you didn't want there were certain uh blocks you would not walk down you wouldn't go past certain avenues you wouldn't go far further east it was like a bombed out you know berlin after the war there were yeah. bombed out blocks and lots of heroin i'm just so grateful i never liked that and wanted I, I I I really was alive with the idea and on fire with putting on shows and anything that dampened my activity that was I wasn't interested I got really jacked up on coffee a lot <laughs> they had this really <laughs> strong coffee called Ca Cafe Bustella and I'd never had a cappuccino until I went to New York. And I would get totally wired on that stuff. And then just start writing or making up shows or running around and doing things and seeing art and having fun. Hmm. And there was a lot of drinking too, but the, the heroin, that was, um, now that's something that that podcast, The Ballad of Billy Balls really gets into how well, it brought back memories for me of how rough it was down there. Yes. Well, it, yes. I mean, because it seems like there's a huge amount of casualties from that scene. I mean, you always expect a couple, but from looking back at what happened, it did seem that uh, there was a lot of either people dying or very damaged people. It was very, very, very rough. And you know, it's interesting. Yesterday was, I guess, the anniversary of nancy spongen being murdered oh yes god yeah i remember seeing sid and nancy come into cb's one night and there weren't that many people there we went there almost every night just you check in let's go see we knew the people at the doors we already always got in free we knew the bartender we just go if it was boring or you didn't like the band you'd leave or you hang out it was one of those nights where it wasn't very lively and I was sitting, I remember exactly where I was sitting and I looked and there was nobody in the back of the club really. And Sid and Nancy walked in and they stood at the end of the bar, just checking it out, seeing if they knew anybody and they didn't. And so they left, but there was a few moments of them standing there that I will never forget. Maybe it was because of their fame, their notoriety, their notoriousness, their hair. 
or yeah. Sid's pallor, the, their white pallor, and Sid's skin was just like luminescent, or transparent is a better word. And his dyed black hair, he had that lock around his neck. I mean, he looked like a caricature of Sid Vicious, and she was a caricature <laughs> of Nancy Spungen. Yeah. But that white hair and that hard makeup, and they just glowed from just they glowed with notoriety or danger or fucked upness. They were just that was an incredible moment. And I actually found recently a napkin where I drew them. I drew, a, I have a drawing of Sid and Nancy from that mm. moment that I'm going to um, make into a t-shirt eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I know, because there was a, there was, was there a, a punk band, a black punk band? Was it Pure Evil as well? I think um, I did an interview with one of the, the sort of lead singer of that recently. And I mean, again, I think I suspect most of them are dead now, but again, it, it was just that sense that you could see from photographs as well as stories that most people who were part of that whole world, you know, like um, Johnny Thunders and, and Jerry Nolan, they were, all sort of, they were all sort of going down badly, weren't they? I mean, it was... Oh, very, yes, they were junkies. I remember when Johnny Thunders played at Irving Plaza and I was working there that night. And he couldn't, he was too doped up to play. So I remember the show was delayed very, for a very long time until they could get him into some kind of shape. I remember watching from seeing him backstage and just thinking, what's going on here? But I figured that out later. But, and mm. I remember him getting on stage, getting, they got him, they propped him up on stage in front of the mic with his guitar. I don't even think the rest of the band was there. It was something, it was so disheveled. It was going to start out like a band. I don't remember exactly. I just remember that the whole thing was a fiasco and they had to get him up there. Otherwise they would have to return everybody's money. And that was like the big <laughs> crisis, the big crisis. Oh my God. So get him on stage to just play anything. I just remember looking at his, his, he still had platform shoes. I remember staring at those and how, scuffed up and fucked up they were and how fucked up he was and he was trying to play and trying to sing and ultimately the whole thing was really sad and absolutely tragic and I had many friends who thought doing heroin was cool they were following in the footsteps of William Burroughs and they became casualties their all their promise and their youth was uh, quickly eroded away. Yes. And many died, or they're in very dire straits right now as older people. They don't have... Some, some people moved to Berlin where they could live off the German welfare. Oh, yes, that's true, actually. Yes. So how were you, you know, with the club scene? Because there was, there was like the Mud Club, wasn't there? which was very famous, Max's Kansas City, which had the whole Andy Warhol scene going on. Then you had Hilly and the CBGB. So did you, at that stage, were you looking to sort of become, you know, a performer yourself, at, you know, during that period? Well, I had already, I had been a performer growing up. 
but I put it to the back burner because I was interested in, in being a director. And I directed at that off-off Broadway theater and I'm credited as the director of the vaudeville show. I was organizing an awful lot of disparate elements. Everybody really pitched into that. But once I got a taste of like how difficult it was to deal with difficult people, <laughs> yes. I wasn't sure that was really something I wanted to pursue. It was fun for a while to run Club 57, but the same thing happened, you know, it, it's just, you're babysitting a lot of out of control personalities. And um, I thought that, that has a shelf life, you know? Yes. And, and I had already, I'd been, a, I'd performed in anyway, it was just so easy to fall into performing because everybody was doing it. And um, I did it a lot at Club 57 and at these other clubs. And I remember there were just so many opportunities and it was a way to, to, to make enough money to pay rent. It was a lot easier to, to book a date at a, at a club and do a show and get what you needed or then try to get a grant as an artist or a performance artist. And I, I was at Mud Club a lot. So my, and once I started doing things, it just, uh, what do you call it? Snowballed. Yeah. So that other places ask you, and I was in a variety of different bands. Some of them were one night only. You end up getting invited or, or uh, to perform in other people's productions. There were club promoters who wanted to have nights i dreamed up a bazillion theme nights and would contact clubs to see if they wanted to host it and pay for it and they did and you know so just a crazy amount of activity once it's really got going never stopped yes absolutely. and then and then it would lead to being in little underground films and i was in a couple of Beth and Scott B's movies, and Sarah Driver did a movie called Sleepwalk, which is recently on the Criterion Collection, and that is a, uh, Jim Jarmusch was the DP on it. That's a good, a good film to watch for, to see what the streets used to look like. We shot most of it in their loft in the Bowery, right. and the Bowery was a really frightening place. I'd never seen any thing like that when I got to New York. I didn't see that in London. I mean, I saw the people vomiting on the Kilburn High Road and you'd see some people down on their luck, but nothing like the Bowery with drunks <coughs> everywhere and people just flop houses. And it was a crazy place for a young, any kind of young person to be in, or particularly a young woman. And if, if <coughs> I had a young daughter, I would never have let her there, but my parents of that generation were just not paying attention much. But, uh, <coughs> Carla got a biscuit in my throat. Do you need a moment to? No, wait a minute. <coughs> yeah. <I> do. <coughs> oh, that's better. So how did you get um, the gig for The Hunger? <coughs> I was uh, in a Beth and Scott B movie called The Offenders. 
and a young actor named Jimmy Russo, James Russo was the star and he was an up and coming actor and we became friends and he told a casting woman named Mary Goldberg, who's one of the leading casting people in New York at the time about me. And I met her and she met me. Uh, I, the first, the first um, meeting she got me was with Sergio Leone. He was in town shooting Once Upon a Time in America. And I oh, was yeah. just excited to go meet Sergio Leone. And he didn't speak any English. And we just sat there. I just sat there and talked to him through a translator. And it was just more of a like, let's see what she looks like kind of thing. And I was all done up in my, I dyed red hair by that point. And yeah, I look different than the average actress. Let's put it that way. And um, so because of that, and because of the photograph that I had submitted as my headshot was not the usual uh, actress headshot. When Tony Scott came to New York casting that particular role, she called me in. So I just went in and auditioned. And then I, w I had the part, then I didn't have the part because Actors' Equity in England wouldn't allow an American to come in and do a role that could be done by a British actor. Mm. But apparently at the last minute, the person they had picked for the part couldn't act because she was, I saw her later, she was in, the makeup artist said, pointed her out because she was an extra in the club scene. Right. So that's who had your part, but she couldn't act. Because mm. the part had, there was lines, there, there was dialogue. And all that got cut. So thank God there was dialogue. And I think they also needed somebody who had an American accent that wasn't faking mm. it. So um, that's how I got it. And I really got the job at the last minute and flew there kind of at the last minute. And it was <laughs> really, a, I, I'm, I have to start writing the memoir where I write about all of this because- yes. I've got the outline. I have the pitch. I'm just damn lazy, you know. It's nearly there. But what was it? I mean, you know, you meet David Bowie, you know, 10 years before, you know, you were just buying an album and suddenly you're in the same film. So that must be I know. surreal. Very surreal. Very surreal. But I had already had <laughs> so many surreal experiences before that, by that point, that I just accepted that my life was going to be a series of these fantastically surreal experiences. And I was, and I had really ever since reading Isadora Duncan's autobiography, I had decided this is the life I want. I want a life of extraordinary experiences. So there I was having one and it's like, okay, this is going exactly as I planned. Mm. So <laughs> it's the not, I didn't, I didn't have plans to become a movie star or to become rich and famous. I had plans to have an exciting, interesting life. Yeah, well, absolutely. So one of the great films that we saw in the 80s, Desperately Seek and Susan, you, you even had a, a starring moment in that, didn't you? Well, no, I'm just basically uh, one of the East Village cameos, but it was memorable. 
It and I'll was. forever thank forever thank the the costume designer and the DP for suggesting they they pan up my legs. I did inherit a good set of gams from my mother and her mother. <laughs> yes. So I'm glad they showed them off then because they're kind of going to seed now. Oh, well. But look, but sort of on the musical front, you know, we had the punk period, which was like 75, 76 to sort of the late 70s, and then it all gets a bit sort of dreadful. And then you had post-punk and you had bands like, you know, the Gang of Four, Magazine, Peel. But, you know, in America, you had that psychobilly stuff with the um, Rockets and then the Stray Cats and um, all that kind of groovy kind of... Thing. I always thought those guys were straight rockabilly. Yeah. Psycho didn't come into a little bit later, but of course the original Psycho Billy is Hazel Atkins, right? Yes, and that's um, and that's kind of fascinating. And then you know, in the UK, we had this kind of indie pop world that started with bands like you know Tears for Fears, and then you had definitely people like the Smiths that kind of came along, and that had that kind of slightly sort of jingly jangly sound with lots of kind of emotional lyrics. But then you're you know for your acting, your club world you know you also then form a band as well don't you which is quite an interesting period of music because because in America you know you you start we started getting all those bands like you know Husker Du and the Butthole Surfers and Big Black and then Sonic Youth and then you know obviously there'd been Lydia Lydia as well so so what was how did you know your your sort of band sort of form I mean what was um because it was well I was I'd been in a lot of bands um, these one-off bands at Club 57 that we created just for certain nights. And then one of those bands was, um, I had a group of gals from that, from that neighborhood. We called ourselves the Ladies Auxiliary of the Lower East Side and we would host events at the club. And we planned a night, uh, Rites of Spring Bacchanal. And I said, we really should need a band to go with this. And the slits had come out, I think, and so I was, there were a lot more, of course, X-Ray Specs, I was always a huge fan mm. of, but the slits were all girls, but I thought, well, why don't we be all girls, but we're a percussive orchestra, it shouldn't be a real band. I, I initially envisioned it as a theater piece, a performance art piece, and it was just for that one night, and it was basically, we were literally banging on pots and pans, which I used to do as a kid, and most kids do. And we'd have, we kind of had a set list, but it was like, this is the slow song, this is the fast song. We're gonna call this song May, and just, and then my friend Kim Davis is a singer, and more of a singer than anybody else in the band. And um, she knew these mad, madrigals. I just said, riff on those. So we just made up this stuff and didn't really even have a rehearsal per se. And I found all this garbage, well, it was, um, they were cutouts of vinyl or leather that were from a warehouse that was actually in an alleyway next to CBGB's. You would, I would comb the neighborhood to find stuff that had been thrown out to use as our decor. But we, we did that all the time back then. You'd find great, uh, you could find furniture, really good furniture. Um, there were refrigerator and uh, lots of very large cardboard boxes being thrown out all the time that we would drag into the club 
paint, make them into a set or a, something, and then the next morning toss it out in the street again. <laughs> there was a, that was there was a wonderful disposability about things back then, and you didn't need money to be creative, or you didn't, needed very little. So I found all these cutout. There were big pieces of I don't know if they were pleather or leather or vinyl, but they had been cut out squares. And I hung that in the front of the stage as if it was kind of like the chicken wire they put on in rowdy country western bars. So when people yes. throw bottles, it was kind of like that. But we all dressed up in, in togas and goddess costumes and just made a huge racket. There was a uh, Wendy Wilde made mushroom punch. So a lot of people were high and it was a huge success. And so we did it again and a few more times. And then the girls, some of the girls got very inflated egos about this. Right. And they decided, then somebody added, somebody decided we needed a real drummer. And then we started getting real, quote unquote, real gigs. And the whole thing turned into more of a band. And there were some very nasty, a couple of the girls got very nasty and there was a lot of really fucked up politics going on, power, power plays. And I guess the guy from Y Records decided to put out a EP. We did that. But by that time, I couldn't stand it any longer. And Danny Johnson, who start, really started that band with me, she couldn't stand it any longer. And I think that I might have been I might have been doing The Hunger when they opened, the band opened for The Clash. Wow. At Bonds in New York. And I was so happy I wasn't there because I did. I knew that anybody who opened for The Clash got spit on and treated horribly. I don't think, I know they were treated badly, but no, they didn't spit on them in New York. I heard they spit on you in, in England. Mm. And I thought, time. fuck that. I'm not. <laughs> but I'd been out of town when I came back. Danny, I called Danny and she said, I quit the band. And I immediately said, I quit too. I'd had enough of that. And they kind of petered, petered out after a while. It's like, this is, this isn't fun anymore. It was fun at the beginning when it was a performance piece and people are, you can't take this seriously. This is a ridiculous spectacle. It's not music. Stop pretending. It's, you know, it's one thing to behave in a nutty, goofy way when it's spontaneous and fun. When you start, when it becomes an act, it's not for me. It wasn't mm -hmm. for me then. And particularly when it's not pleasant to go to rehearsals because everybody's backbiting each other and I'm sad to say that a lot of this is something I've read about that happened in the Go-Go's and happened in the Bangles well, no. that women just tend to be very um at least back then maybe it's just it's just something that happens anyway I remember Joey Arias was having difficulties in the band he was in and he and I were talking about it. And I said, fuck these people, let's do our own thing. Because anytime I run into Joey at the clubs, 
he and I would just be cutting up and improvising. He, you know, he was originally in the Groundlings. He's an incredible performer and a, and a great improviser. And we would make up stuff all the time. And I said, you know what? We've already got this cast of characters we do just for fun. Let's put it in, make a show out of it. Yeah. And I'd already had so much experience growing up being in, in shows and being in real theater and, you know, knowing how to kind of behave in that, in that milieu that uh, bands in general are just too difficult. People, they really need to be seen as plays that have a, a, a run, you know, a closing date. You have mm. your opening and then your closing date. You run for six weeks or whatever. If people like it, you you run it for another year or whatever. And but then even then, everybody gets sick of it. Yes, well, yes. But I ended up um, I ended up in Bongwater because Kramer was a sound man on a Pulsalama gig. And then a couple of years after I quit Pulsalama, I think he called me up and he wanted to do a band. So he sent me some music, and I had. Um, by that time, I'd been writing a lot. I'd been writing poetry ever since I was very young. And I'd taken a poetry class, studied with this poet in London. I can't remember his name now, but he's what? Uh, shoot. Hugo, Hugo, not, he lived in Islington. I can't look up on my phone because no. I'm talking to you on it. But anyway, <laughs> I wrote a lot of poems in London and then I just kept, it would just write things and I kept a dream journal. So I wrote my dreams down starting in the early eighties as a writing exercise because these dreams were so wacky and fun and funny. And I would, I thought, well, this would be a good, some kind of discipline. I need some kind of discipline for writing. And this is good as any, you know, I'll write these down, just like stories. So um, Bongwater was a combination of my, those dream journals and lyric, uh, poems that turned into lyrics and a lot of improvising in the studio and then having ideas to, let's do this cover, let's do that cover. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it all, it was fun and it, and, and, you know, we put out the records and, and, and then got, it, it, then it wasn't fun. So that's all I want to say about that. Yes. Well, absolutely. Because you were saying about sort of do it for six months. And I remember having done this in uh, this show for quite a long time. Most bands have a five year narrative. You know, you get together, you have 12 months, which is normally the honeymoon period. And then you get the first single, then the first album, things are a bit hit and miss. And then, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting journey but the one thing is in the uk you know we we had certain gatekeepers you know we had a very good you know like weekly music press like the nme melody maker sounds yes and every and every little town and city had a venue and all and then as you realize it's a very small country so you can drive one into the other and, oh yeah uh, and we did that in bongwater we went on a tour in 1990 yes and, and we did that in some of the most incredible shows i've ever participated in and the most incredible audiences were some of those those london the, the london show there and those pub gigs at, in newcastle and leeds were off the charts yes because I, I didn't 
it just was just for fun. It was purely for fun. And, and did that's you, when that's when it works, you know. And that's uh, did, can you remember because one of the people who was so influential was John Peel, and you did a John Peel session, didn't you? With um, yes. And did you have you got many? You know, just was that a you did four tracks, including the. Well, there's one good story that actually Randy Hudson reminded me because Dave Rick quit the, the band when it stopped being fun for him. And, um, and, and Randy Hudson be, replaced him. And they're both really great guys. And I've played, uh, we, we did a Bongwater songbook show in Portland in 2017 at the Portland Institute of Contemporary Art with all those guys. So I like playing with them, uh, with Dave Lick, Dave Rick and Randy Hudson. So Randy, uh, actually just on his Facebook page, was talking about those Peel sessions. And he reminded me that we did, in the set that we were playing during that tour, we were doing a Hendrix song, Castles in the Sky. Yeah. Castles in the Air, Castles in the Air. Because Randy can do every Hendrix lick perf to perfection. It's, he's, it's mind boggling. So we did that and we did, and all those are live. I mean, we're playing it all at the same time, like you're playing live, not like you're not isolating tracks. So we, we had done some of them and then we did that one. And I don't know if that was the last one we did, I can't recall, but it was, we played it better than we had ever played it before. We played it dozens and dozens of times. And it, when it was done, we all looked at each other with our mouths gasped, like agape, like that was amazing, incredible. Well, there's something was wrong with the, with the machinery and it didn't record. Oh. <laughs> So Randy says, well, it was probably sacrilege to do a, 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 a Hendrix cover anyway. Yeah. But that was a real, I remember that was such a shame because that was, that was uh, beautifully done. Oh, Dog Bowl, I think, also played on it. Right. Stephen Tunney, is that his real name? He was on tour too. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of amazing because you did sort of manage to sort of bring out four albums in a very short space of time. So obviously, you must have been 24-7 sort of focused on making music at that stage and, and sort of... Not being... really, because I was doing, I was, well, I was 24-7 focused on doing. So I was doing lots of stuff. I was doing movies and TV. I was do in 1990, I was doing a TV sitcom in Los Angeles called Anything But Love. That tour was on our hiatus. Yes. I had the craziest amount of energy that had nothing to even do with the coffee. <laughs> I was, I, and you know, a lot of it, I think was also fueled from the fact that AIDS had come into the picture and so many people were dying. And I knew that time was precious and you had to get as much done as you could. But I also had some 
crazy manic energy that needed to do things all the time. So I am being creative was a good outlet for that. So I was doing the TV show. I was writing articles for a lot of Condé Nast publications. Yes. I, mean, I made a lot of, because uh, of all my time in New York, I had all these connections to the media world in, in magazines. So I just never said no, <laughs> for better or worse. I never yeah. said no. Well, that's amazing. So then, I mean, because during that period, we'd had sort of the birth of, I don't know, some, we had the grunge period, didn't we? We had the Pixies, and then we had, you know, obviously Nevermind and that sort of period. And then, as with every scene, it becomes a bit tired. So then by, by 92, the band finishes, and then we, in the UK, we get, you know, Britpop, it's referred to. I mean, what then happens for you during the kind of the 90s period when you've, you know, you're no longer in the band or, or the band isn't going? Um, I, I was doing my own shows, my own, and, and I was doing performance art. I did an album for Gaffin in 1995 called The Love Show, L-U-V, which was very much a theatrical piece. I think it works better as a live show than an album, but I was going to revive it this year because it's the 25th anniversary, and it was the and the 30th anniversary of The Power of Pussy, so I had this whole live show plans I was going to tour with called the mm. power of the love the power of the love pussy show <laughs> but the pandemic mm. had other plans now I'm I've written new lyrics to folk song which is a track from the power of pussy because it and I'm planning on recording that even if I just make a video of it and getting that out before election yes it's, it's but uh, in the 90s, in the 90s, um, well, many, many of my friends were dying. So there were a lot of benefits to raise money. There were a lot of memorials. There was a lot of trauma around that. My brother um, died in 98. I was still writing for magazines. I was um, did the love show. I did a lot of live performing. I did movies and TV gigs when they came up. I stayed very busy. Yes, I, I can I, I can see. I mean, because keeping it together, I mean, mostly, you know, a lot of artists, you know, have a five-year moment. They they sort of, you know, they, they, they're in a zeitgeist moment, but then they can't keep it going. You know, also things get a little bit difficult on a personal level and stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But you managed to sort of go for decades. You know, you've been just able to keep it together. I mean, when you look at it, I mean, obviously at the time you're just in it, but when you look back at it, do you, are you sort of amazed and impressed with your own ability to <laughs> I have been recently. I have been recently because as, as I lurch towards my 65th year, and Medicare in in the U.S. Thank you, Jesus. Um, and I'm more tired. I don't have that energy I had. Of course, who would? You know, you get in your 60s, you don't. So yeah, I look back on it and I think, well, thank God I. And you know, I knew that back then. I knew that back then because I'd seen people who were older, and. I knew that as long as I had the energy, I wanted to burn the candle at both ends. And I watched, and you know, another person who did that 
in his own way was Keith Haring, who was a friend of mine. Yes. And he did not stop. He was, and he, and particularly when he found out he was HIV positive. And I think many of us from that period of time were, whether we were born with it or I don't know where it came from, but had this passion to just create and do as much as we could in the time we were given. And you know what, I, I can't under, underestimate how much we were convinced that we were gonna die in a nuclear war. And we grew up with that. We grew up with that. Yes. And when Reagan became president, we were convinced. But there was just a group of us found each other. We were hyperkinetic pinballs in a crazy pinball machine. And it wasn't, and we knew there wasn't just one pinball machine. We could, we could, you know, run around in. There was many things that that might have been from. Well, it could have been also growing up where I was taking all those lessons and had to manage my time. I was always packed. It wasn't packed as full as like the tiger mother or how do they, those crazy okay. help. It wasn't that crazy. Thank no, God. I, I got a lot of time to hang out in the woods and do nothing. And that's really important to have that do nothing time. But I just think I was shown that there were all these things you you can do and do them and yes. somebody an artist like david bowie was always traversing the different mediums in a way andy warhol was doing that too but so were many many people whose names we will never know and that was all going on in new york yeah and absolutely. there was so much there's so much encouragement to do that that i um but plus, I don't have children. I didn't have children, so I had to do something. If I'd had children, I probably might be, you know, have done a far, far, far less. Well, yes, I think that is often the way. So when you brought out your second solo album, you, you kind of, on this one, you sort of, you work again with one of your old collaborators, don't you? Christian Hoffman. Oh yes, Pretty Songs and Ugly Stories. Yeah, yeah I, I wanted to work with Christian because I think he's brilliant. And um, so it, it became, it's, it's more of a Christian Hoffman record than it is an Ann Magnuson <laughs> record on some <laughs> level. But, um, but it, it's, I wanted to do something that was more lush and melodic and theatrical. And, um, and pretty, I guess. Yeah. I had had my, the, my original idea for that was pretty different than what, what ended up, but that's what happens. And then I ended up doing another solo album in 2006, which was just me. I decided I'm going to be, I'm just, for better or worse, I want to do whatever I want to do. I just want to have fun. I want to have a lot of spoken word in it. And I want to have a lot of dreams. And, and that was done partly because I was trying to do a web series using the, my grandmother's dolls and my dreams. And I made a pilot with a friend. And I recorded the tracks for Dream Girl as 
future episodes. But then we could never really find the funding because the pilot, my friend who made it, is very, um, very, very talented. But he's he required it was a lot of time with his animation, a lot of time, and in order for him to be properly um, paid for that, we needed a real budget, and mm. that was just not not able to come come into reality. So I put that on the back burner. It turned out really, it's really nice. And maybe maybe we'll show it in the next year or two to find the right time to do it. Yeah. It's got, um, there's this illustration I did of David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust when I was 16 in high school. And I made refrigerator magnets out of them. And there you can get them on my website. Somebody actually ordered some this morning, which was a big shock and surprise. <laughs> and, and a local designer here, we're going to make fabric out of it and make Bowie pajamas. Oh. So those, those will be available for Christmas, hopefully. Definitely for his birthday. But he's, he figures into... He, he shows up in my dreams from time to time. So I was thinking for his 75th birthday, I might have some Bowie event that would uh maybe we'll show that that um that pilot because he's in it he's in it as the Jungian archetype known as the cosmic man because well, Ziggy Stardust was this this the cosmic man yes absolutely I mean he just there was something amazing about him and yeah and it's interesting. So, I did that, so I did that one on my own and then um it's just the problem is you can't make any money with music online. I mean, you know, everything's changed. So to put money into these projects and not um, get any reimbursement from them is, um, I don't know, it's made me want to rethink how to proceed. But I've got this memoir I have to write and I've got so many things I've got to do on these art shows coming up that I'm never at a loss for things to do. It's, I know. I mean, have you managed to um, archive all your... Well, actually, you said you collect and kept everything. Good. I have all of it, yeah. I have all of it, and there was a, art, a, a person who, who organises archives who I was going to meet with in March, right before the lockdown. And that's... Yeah, but, yeah, there are definite plans to get all of that together and uh, get that to a... Um, some kind of an institution where it can be taken care of. There's so many videos that have never been seen. There's so much live footage. There's so much stuff. And I figured if I get older, there might be, you know, like more interest. <laughs> <laughs> as, you know, as the, it, the, because more interest is generated as time goes by for these different scenes. And I have things from all these different periods of time and places, as well as, when I started coming to LA in the mid to late 80s, I was hanging out with Jim Shaw and Mike Kelly and the Cal Arts art scene and the bands like Red Cross. So that's a whole other part of my life. So okay. I was in one of their one of their videos. Yes. So I yeah, know. I think it's just I'm so all over the place that it's hard to define and pigeonhole in a way that that people need to in order to monetize it. But I don't want to waste time trying to figure out how to monetize. I want to be creative and keep being creative. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's always tricky, but is there, when you look back, is there a sort of particular period which you sort of 
have more fondness for you know a, a sort of a, a sort of couple of years where you feel that was an absolutely golden period or is it a mm. bit more complicated than that i think it's more complicated but but because i've been watching a lot of my dad took a lot of home movies there's a tremendous amount of documentation of growing up in west virginia and one of the things i'd like to do is to make um a film incorporating those 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 home movies yes i think there's a time period in in the 60s that was very magical there but there's a time in that when i was watching that pink pop documentary or that footage from pink pop in in amsterdam or where was it, it took place on it was holland right yes that's the pink pop yes in then i then i became very very enamored of the glam rock hillbilly hippie era <laughs> <laughs> I think each each time period has a really beautiful moments with with my friends and lovers or whoever you know whoever I'm with that really beautiful moments but each one like life has you know the ups and downs so I can't say there's one time what's better than I'm hoping that time might be now it's still or that coming. time yeah, well, when the vaccine comes and when trump is voted out yes god well, that would be um it'd be a nice end to the year wouldn't it let's face it it, it would be i suppose what was what's quite interesting could have you know because there has been a lot of books come out recently haven't there people have sort of found their photographs of like oh look have you seen this one around midnight um it's it's a guy called gary this only came out in about three three who's months. who's who did it? Um, a photographer. I mean, he was a young kid at the time called Gary Green, who did a book called, and it's kind of all the club scene around uh, Max's CBGB's, the Chelsea Hotel. So I suppose what I've noticed is that there is a passing of time somewhere between 25 to 30 years where suddenly people kind of go, oh, I've got some really amazing photographs and, and no one would yes. have really been bothered about them. And then suddenly went, Oh, actually, there's suddenly a massive interest in black and white photographs of clubs. You're probably in here. Right? Yes. But, um, there was a lot of that. There's a, a very nice catalog that MoMA made for the Club 57 retrospective. And I wrote an essay in there. And there's really good good ephemera and um, or images of the ephemera, yes. film stills, the art, and um, a lot of the um, photographs. Well, you, I do. I also, I took a lot of photographs that are all in boxes from different periods see, of time. One of them is, but one is in a group of us went to Tokyo in 1985. Yes. <laughs> in 1985, John Sachs and myself, Kenny Scharf, a couple of French artists, and we were hosted at the Sugetsu Hall, which is a auditorium or in a gallery space connected to the Sogetsu Ikebana School, which was founded by um, the Teshigahara family. And Hiroshi Teshigahara was our host and he made the film Woman of the Dunes and some other incredible films. And his best friend was Izamu Noguchi, who was there. 
And I've got great pictures of all of us hanging out. And I thought I would like to put together a little, just a little booklet of the pictures and that called Tokyo 85. Yes. But I might have to wait a few years because now people are still about nineteen eighty one, right? Hasn't moved up to eighty five yet, has it? No, <laughs> the interest. Well, I don't know. I think I think you'll be surprised. I think people are starting to sort of pull stuff out. There was another book that I won't keep going on about it, but this came out like Texas, you know, about the Texas punk scene. Again, a guy sort of just had a lot of photographs and. Oh was, yeah, uh huh. It just yeah, all those there. things are great. I mean, you know, there should be. Oh, let me show you. I'll pull one out. There are some guys in France who made this booklet about Tom Rubinitz, who I collaborated with on a video called Made for TV. That happened right before. I made that between Pulsalama and Bongwater, as well as a lot of other things, mm. where I played every character on the TV, on the TV channel. And that was at MoMA. MoMA acquired that for their collection, which was great. But Tom, Tom did a lot of stuff for um, in the drag scene for the Pyramid Club. Right. And uh, his stuff was really very optimistic, and he he was very influenced by the '60s psychedelia, as we all were. I know. So I... there's yeah, they're young, younger people are finding all this stuff, and then finding the wherewithal to get the funding to make these publications. Which yes, is nice. I, th I, th I think this is it. I think you need to make your, you need you we need. We need to see your book, don't we, really? This is true, with photographs. Yeah, I got a few. You know what? I was actually inspired recently. I was told about, you know, the English actor Dirk Bogard? Oh, yes. He did a whole series of, of memoirs um, during different times of his life, different events. So I'm kind of inspired by that notion. Oh, you know, okay. my husband just arrived, so I think we've been talking like oh god, yeah, okay. So just what sixteen what? hours. Sixteen. I hours. think I've taught. I. How long is this going to be? Is oh yeah. Be? So so um, just one last question then. Just if you could have said something to an eighteen-year-old self, um, what would it be if you were just to think, oh god, if I could have just said one thing to that person? Wow. Well, I think I did, was saying those things to myself. You're going to get through this. You'll get through it. This is it. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You'll get through this. That's the main thing. Yeah, well, look, I know it's been quite a long time, actually. Um, but, but definitely... Well, that's what you get with me, unfortunately, because I just yammer on and on <laughs> and on. But you get lots to cut out. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. Well, look, thanks, and we've done it at last. Well done. I know, I know. Indeed, we'll edit it there with great skill. I know, then we just start to look at her cat, and um, I don't know what else. But anyway, it was all very emotional. Goodbyes, you don't need to hear those. Anyway, that was me in conversation with the artist and singer and everything else, and Magnuson. And um, there you go. Huge thank you for giving me the time for that. This has been David Eastall, C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Check it out. They might just change your life.
all send you to sleep. It's a fine line. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.